0: I'm Greg,
1: and this is No, no Liberings Aloud. Thank you for joining us. So today we have a guest. This is only our second recording, but we already have guests.
2: Why not? Why not just jump right into that? Yes. Interviews, more equipment. <laughs> yes.
1: So today we've invited a local architect and designer, Greg Wiston-Smith. Who will tell us a little bit about his work in both architecture and technology and how the two are intertwining is that right
0: yeah yeah
1: so greg can you give us a little bit of an introduction and context about who you are and what you've done
0: yeah so i'm a designer used to work in architecture and have a master's in that where i'd explored public library design and that was kind of what brought me into this area And right now I'm wrapping up a second Master's in Humanities Computing at the University of Alberta, looking at digital spaces and how people understand them, so.
1: Great. So Greg, you did your Master's in Architecture at Dalhousie University. Can you tell us a little bit about what you did there and what your project
0: was? Yeah, so I wanted to look at public library architecture as comprehensively as I could. And so both looking back at the history of it and how it got to the place it's at, it's relatively recent, really 150 years we've had public libraries and, well, I guess 170 now, but 1850-ish, and how it's evolved in that time and been inspired by other types of library architecture, and then looking ahead with all of the digital technologies now, how they can shape the space of the building and the space of how people interact with it. And in a sense, too, emphasizing the importance of that physical space as kind of an anchor to the broader idea of the institution and what it does. And so um, I ended up looking in particular at augmented reality for one way of handling some new things and as well as some other ways of making kind of replacing a bunch of people lined up at computer terminals surfing the Internet into a more public experience of information browsing, which was the case in earlier libraries. So.
2: Why, uh, why did you choose libraries to focus on in the first place?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really powerful institution in public life in the West in terms of something that people of all, walk backs, all backgrounds, all walks of life can come and be in it, especially in the context of a multi-faith society between from atheism to many other religions, Christianity, Islam, Judaism. Buddhism that this is a place where everybody can show up at because if you go back 500 years and there is a sort of default religion in a society everybody has that public meeting place that is not a sporting arena and that's not the case in a multi faith society so in a I didn't actually bring this up in the in the thesis much but it was undergirding everything else and a funny thing, I was doing my in Halifax is where I studied architecture. They have their civic access is the city hall at one end and the church at the other end. In Edmonton, it's the library. And I thought how lucky we are for that. So.
1: Okay, so one thread. It's amazing how in the digital age, with all the technology and individual experiences with our personal, you know, mobile devices and screens, how space is such a key issue. The demand for space, conflicts around it in terms of yeah, just the demand and people wanting to be in a public space with others free of charge. It's amazing that in, in 21st century that's actually a growing need rather than a diminishing need. And also these ideas of kind of sp- spontaneous or just open-ended thinking through information or accessing information. I guess that's what I appreciate about your work is that you you get it and you, you talk about it and you try to explore it through technology. So... Can you comment both on, I don't know, space and browsing, I guess?
0: Yeah. And I'll just comment on what you said there too for a second that, I mean, why I'm a designer is I think we're in this position now and have been for a couple hundred years in any industrial society where the people hired to do design in the society are mediating culture and technology because we kind of know the technologies do create cultures around them at this point. Even something like cycling culture is built around the bike and it didn't exist without the bike. And so being in this position where we have some ideas about maybe what we'd like to see in culture, and we have this rapidly changing possibilities with technology, what we can do with it. So the question then becomes, okay, what are we gonna design that lets us do this? And so in the context of libraries, we have all these digital technologies now that are extremely good at search and fairly bad at browse. And there is a term rich browsing interface. I, I think I may be getting that wrong, but something close to that. And it's still screen based, even if it's maybe better than a bunch of search results. And so I wanted to think, OK, everybody talks quite positively about accidental discoveries in a library and vicinity of what they've actually gone to find or a bookstore. And how can we pull that into the physical space or, or like the excuse me, how we can let people browse the digital database with that richness in the physical space? and. I was, this was kind of an ongoing thread through a lot of other aspects of this project. I was trying to deal with this while dealing with other things and it kind of kept hitting the wall that if you do this via screen, everybody, you can only have one person using it at once, which is really not ideal. That if this is such a good thing, you're going to have a lot more than one person wanting to use it as a means for browsing the library's digital collection in the physical space. And so augmented reality actually ended up being the thing that clicked because I thought, okay, you know, everybody has a phone. A lot of them can allow for this. And so you could have 20 people using this interface at once in the same physical space. And so to just quickly define augmented reality. Yes, let's do that. We'll, we'll so because
1: do yeah. what, what does augmented versus mixed reality? So when, you, when we talk about augmented reality here today, how do, how do we think about it?
0: So I understand it very much as augmenting the physical world with digital information. And that's quite literal in the sense that you're viewing the world through your phone. It would be your phone's camera seeing the world as it is. And then in that display, it's adding digital objects to it. And I, th- I think mixed reality had been what Microsoft was trying to put forward. And my understanding is the only real difference has to do with um, the, the technical term would be occlusion, which is objects in front of other objects. So in mixed reality, if a digital object was behind a desk, it would actually display it as being behind that desk. In augmented, it would always be kind of in front, and whatever was augmented is just going to sit on top of stuff, even if it shouldn't, in the view, kind of layers of your view. I think everything is just getting called augmented now. And then of course, virtual being the contrast for virtual reality when you're fully immersed in a fully virtual world instead of this mixture.
1: Right, and so right now, really with proliferation of personal mobile devices, most of us experience it either, th- either through the phone or an iPad, right? That's- yeah.
0: yeah, and of course the, the benefit of tablets is the extra touch space and the extra size to be viewing it through. and I mean, one ax- aspect of this was access. So in the context of the thesis, I was thinking, you know, the library could be loaning out tablets for internal use in the case of someone that didn't have a device that could do it and really wanted to try it out.
2: Yeah, because it's, I mean, it's still the idea then of one, one device per person. But yeah. instead of the library having like X number of kiosks that you go up and use as your like, I don't mean, catalog station, yeah. That was lame. Oh, bad, Carla. <laughs> um, then people are just bringing their own, right?
1: Okay. But it's interesting. So just to go back to what you said earlier, individual versus multiple people, there is still that option of multiple kids crowding around a single iPad or a stranger or a friend peeking over your shoulder as you look at the object through your small screen. Um, and I know me and you have talked about sort of the Democrat... Uh, AR being very democratic or a little bit more open in a sense that with a virtual reality headset it's just you um, whereas on a mobile there is some degree of other people kind of sharing that space yeah and
0: so what I I find augmented reality significantly more interesting than VR because I think it has a high chance of being pervasive um, it's pretty amazing how high smartphone use cuts across income demographics it is not as discriminatory as one would guess. Um, I mean, VR is quite the opposite, and I think it's going to stay the opposite. As an entertainment technology, for particular uses, probably, I mean, it'll have some non-entertainment uses as well, but it will be that sort of special walk into the room, now I'm doing VR for two hours, now I'm not. AR could be anywhere, right? And thinking of the types of uses it's getting put to, stuff like um, seeing how furniture could sit in your house, IKEA's Put out a fairly seamless app that does that a lot better than I was expecting it would. And education being another really good use for this, where they're showing augmented reality for children using it to look at, say, anatomical diagrams or kind of science things and how they relate to um, like molecules and whatnot. So I think it has high potential for that. And this, I'd been looking at this a couple of years before Pokemon Go, which was the big kind of thing that got it out there kind of nice just so people know what it is but yeah I can maybe describe if you would like to hear it how I'd kind of imagine this library interface could work
1: of course yeah please tell us how how so this is an interface for browsing digital objects in a real library physical space
0: yeah so to just start from the beginning I mean every library now has a full digital catalog of its holdings across the entire network not just the single branch you're at And just to add the context, I was really focusing on community-scale branches because I kind of feel that's the most important one, despite some cities choosing to invest mainly in the... Like, thankfully not Edmonton, but choosing to mainly invest in one large library. I think it's a huge mistake. It should be a small community institution. And so you're in a situation then where the library has a large amount of holdings, but the individual branch never will, right? And so coming at it from that, it's... The presumption in, in my design was that the digital things you're browsing usually had a physical counterpart that you'd put a hold on. But yeah, basically, so you have this database and I kind of called it like a dummy or a folly object in the space. So if you can imagine a rectangle the size of a bookshelf that isn't a bookshelf. And at that time, some of the newer AR technologies weren't out and so I would presumed it had some kind of graphic on it that let the phone know what it was and that it was for this. And that the user would probably have a custom app released by the public library in order to use this thing. But anyhow, you'd lift your phone up and it would know what this custom object was. And from there, it would start to put digital spaces on top of this kind of dummy object. And so I designed a few different possibilities for this. These digital spaces basically could show you either search results if you were searching and then wanted to have a better way of looking at all of them or even the potential that I thought was a lot more interesting of curated collections. And so if you had this idea in your mind of sort of a greatest hits bookshelf that you wanted your friends to be able to go look at, you as a user could put that, you could create it, publish it, and then go view it in this interface. Or maybe it's even the institution doing it. And the interesting thing, right, is this physical space could have a bunch of different configurations. It doesn't matter if it's like a bookshelf or maybe it's like a long strip along the outside of the library. One of the stranger ones I did was this idea of a bunch of columns arranged like a grove of trees and the most important results were shown in the center of this and shown larger and the ones on the periphery were less important and so you are really spatializing that idea of center periphery of importance of information as part of how you're browsing it and again I mean that's no harder to do than the strip than some really easy way of doing this so once you start going with the digital stuff it's not hard to try things out it's yeah
1: (laughs) it's interesting how the paradigms i guess maybe that are common to architecture or that you're much more versed in versus how we prioritize information certainly on the web or on a digital format literally through lists and top down versus center to periphery. Um, and your your idea of a curated list, of course now in 2018, like we have an option of either the institution or you know librarians or even users so other library customers who have their own accounts and maybe ma- make lists or even algorithms, right? So the, you know the, that collection that, that pre-selected view, can come from a variety of sources and can you even toggle between so today I want to see a librarian's kind of top picks versus algorithmically created and it could be random it could be some sort of logic or obviously crowdsourced by your own readers in the community.
0: Yeah well and I mean search results are an algorithmically curated thing right I mean we're used to this all the time and I don't think we think of search results as being curated but they are and yeah, I, I absolutely see it that way, is how this could be used.
2: So what's the value of having it be something that is basically like a, a digital or a digitally enhanced experience in a public space? So what's the value of actually having someone come into like the grove of trees or come and see the bookshelf in the library versus, I don't know, browsing it at home on their iPad or whatever?
0: Well, the hope would be discovery that they wouldn't have otherwise and that it really is browse again and not search. And it would be those serendipitous things that they find. I mean, you'd hope it would just be an enjoyable experience mm-hmm. at the most basic level and in a nice way, an enjoyable experience happening in non-commercial space, which we're getting less and less of that, I think. And so to have the library doing this would be a great chance for people to try it out. And also maybe even as a way to build familiarity with this technology so that when they encounter it in other domains, it's not quite as surprising. I mean, museums is an area where there's more uptake in this in terms of digital exhibits on top of the physical exhibits. And so I think there's a fairly good likelihood this will show up more, so.
1: So part of it, of course, it will be new every time part of it is you have to physically inhabit that space, like to be in a branch. And this is your five minutes of fun, your scavenger hunt-like serendipitous injection of both information and kind of fun experience, just not having a particular goal, rather than sitting in your room with a screen and, and I also wonder, so, you know, there's a lot of talk recently about the addictive, be, um, the built-in addiction of sites and endless scroll and kind of keeping us on the app, on the site, versus I wonder how in a real space it, can you manufacture sort of addictiveness mm-hmm. to stain, but there are limits, right? You're not going to spend a full hour in a single spot in a library standing at least. Of course we want you to you know st- stay and be comfortable, but I think that physical experience of, of that browsing will be different.
2: Maybe that's part of the like the way to break the addiction to the actual object though, right? Because if you're moving more into augmented reality, if you're having more, I know not the term we use, but a mixed reality experience. So you're less reliant on just this thing in your hand to provide you with that. Experience and instead you actually I mean kind of talking about Pokemon go some of the things some of the benefits that people were saying was like getting people out for walks and Exploring different areas of their city that they would never been to and all that all that good Stuff that happens when you are maybe a little bit more divorced from that piece of tech and actually experience the world So maybe this is the way That we can move a little bit more in that
0: direction. Yeah, I mean what I found most interesting about the Pokemon Go thing living downtown by a bunch of parks, the amount of um random, you know, people talking to strangers in a casual manner about this game because they were all playing it. And these are spaces that, you know, despite being in a fairly dense neighborhood, they're not really inhabited that much. And so for that kind of 3 months of summer that this was going on, it was great to see the amount of sociability going on and the way that Because it was an augmented space, and it should be noted, Pokemon Go is doing two things at once. It's doing both augmented reality and geolocation-based things. And so it's kind of a debate whether um, geolocation is not maybe enough to be augmented reality because we assume that it should also have this visual component that is overlaying digital graphics on the space. But in the way that it's maybe even more place-based than augmented reality is, is really important and so yeah oh, sorry
1: so one of your goals i would hope so you did the research are you now working on a prototype or kind of a demo of actually putting some of this browsing interface uh, into action can you talk about that
0: potentially is, is the most i can say i'm working <laughs> on a different augmented reality project which is excellent and having to get into the technical side because one of the great things about being a designer is we usually know enough about the tech to figure out how we could use it without having to get into the fine details which is maybe not great for getting working prototypes but pretty good for getting some interesting ideas out there but now that i am playing around with the tech it's you know as easy as i was hoping it might be so yeah there may be something coming
2: what are you using
0: um, in this case, um, it's, it's a thing through the University of Alberta, and we're partnering with a different organization, and they're using Unity with the EZAR as the SDK that they're using for that. Um, It's got a fairly generous license compared to some of the other ones. So I think you need to be making over a hundred grand a year as a company to hit the next tier
1: in unity. Yes. Yeah. So, so this
0: is an SDK, the easy AR, and then it just plugs straight into unity and then, but it does have some separate cloud stuff going on. So it's got its own license that you have to kind of, you know, paste the paste the text into unity. So it knows that, but
1: sorry, explain SDK.
0: Ah, sorry. Yeah. Software development kit.
1: So Unity 3D is a game engine. So you would yeah. create your kind of world or functionality, in the, which can be transported to a mobile app. Is that right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And so this, um, sorry, what did you call it? AR kit?
0: Uh Easy AR is Easy the name AR. of this one, yeah.
1: So it would integrate nicely with the Unity 3D, essentially, software. Um, so it's neat to see how many tools. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah, and to give a brief technical overview, I mean, where things are at with AR, um, there's... I'm going to say something around the number of 10 to 15, maybe 12 major or semi-major approaches. All of them seem to offer this SDK or software development kit that almost all of them offer some way to put this in Unity. Um, some of them have a CMS, or so content management system, like a blogging software that would be a user-friendly way of going online and creating AR content. And there is a bit of a gap between the ones that are maybe focus most on the technology. So they have an SDK, but not any user-friendly way to use them. The ones that are really trying to build themselves into marketing. So one way that that works would be a print magazine ad that you, if you have this app, can go and view augmented content with that. So they often do have some user-friendly aspects. And then there's also one such as just called Augment that's really about product marketing. So the idea that you can you still need a marker for this or depending on your phone so you'd have some kind of image you print out put it on your desk hold up your phone and then you could see um some product you might want to buy from an online store see a coffee maker or something in context so yeah it's and it's an interesting place right now because while some app developments and especially game app development unity's become giant in this space and probably for the best that it has just for the good sides of standardization that come from that the ar stuff is still a bit up in the air the major news of the last year too was that um apple put out a ar kit for its newer iphones that allow them to do some pretty advanced stuff and google is in the process of rolling out an equivalent called ar core and this has put these other software companies in a funny place because these two things sort of from the top can do some things they couldn't so some of them are now kind of like integrating these as well into their own framework as a way of saying look you can still use us and get all the benefits that have come from apple or google so i think it may be another three to five years and then we'll know what the major very solid safe platforms are i mean until this point erasma had been the one it's now been bought and renamed as hp reveal and quite established, but I, I got to say, I was a bit surprised at how sloppy part of that app was when we downloaded it. So unsurprisingly, maybe Augment that was this product design commercial one was quite a smooth one to use and, you know, coming from that commercial space, but yeah, we'll see.
1: So this is a project that you mentioned um, is separate from your sort of library user interfaces. Yeah. So you're working at the University of Alberta on that. Yeah. Now... Let's, let's use one more acronym that's highly technical. So Greg already went fairly detailed in terms of different fla- platforms and tools, which is great. However, recently you've explained SLAM to me. Um, I, I realize that you know this is as sort of dense as we're going to get. So uh, maybe to start, so I, I would like to spend you know, two minutes on SLAM. I will read kind of a definition and we'll discuss if it makes any sense to any of us here. So SLAM is a technology used in computer vision technologies which gets the visual data from the physical world in shape of points to make an understanding for the machine. And SLAM stands for simultaneous location and mapping. It makes it possible for machines, so really computers or phones, to have an eye and understand what's around them through visual input. So you've already mentioned markers, right? So traditionally, the way AR has worked is there's some sort of code shape. Really, it's it's your phone reading that little black and white pattern and matching it against something in some sort of database to make that bicycle or drone appear on your phone. Here, we don't need a marker, right? It's the phone, the camera is reading the real world, and not, and it also knows where you are in space. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, basically. But what's interesting about it is um, it loses some context from that too in the sense of basically the way I think about how SLAM is working, if you have a car driving down the street, they're using SLAM in autonomous vehicles, so that's probably the most widely thought about aspect of it now, if you have a tree moving past the car as it's driving, SLAM would be how it knows it's the same tree, because it's kind of mapping at every moment where things are in space and then tracking as they're moving. And so it does let the computer know where it is in a certain space, but possibly unlike a marker, you don't know what space that is or where other things are in the space. So... As me as a designer, if I have some kind of virtual space that I want to pretty directly map onto a certain physical space, that actually, in some ways, Slam isn't quite enough, because how do I know that the corner of my room matches the corner of the real room? If I really all know it well enough, I could probably find a way to do that, versus if I just put a marker in that corner, and in my virtual thing, you, know, you actually put the marker in your virtual space as well when you're doing it marker-based. It's like an extremely direct mapping, even scale. So if you have a object you're showing through the marker, if I know the real-world size of the marker, I can scale my digital object related to that. So SLAM is great in the context of something like the IKEA furniture thing where you're going to be in anybody's living room, not a certain person's living room. And it does let you do or if you want to just show something on a desk. Well, that desk could be anybody's desk, and the objects could be any size. And so it'll be interesting to see how it gets deployed in, again, other contexts beyond, say, the self driving cars. And yeah.
2: I feel like those are contexts that, I don't know. I'm like, wouldn't they have explored those first before the self driving cars? It's much, <laughs> like, much, much where harder are those to do. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right so to the self driving car.
1: So you're saying there's still obviously value for those visual cues for machine vision until we have absolute awareness through the phones of of the space and interpreting it. But of course, how much computing power is needed to sort of process it and then render it. So this is where we always are with any digital technology, right?
0: Totally, yeah. And I think the technology is going to move faster than we can keep up with it. But I think... Yeah, again, coming from a design perspective, it's pretty bad to get too hung up on the current sense of the technology and much better to have a vision of what you're trying to do and then see what's possible and keep checking in and what's possible every five years.
2: Thoughts about it for libraries?
0: Yeah, as far as SLAM goes, it's funny. Mine was really... My design is very based on having markers, just for the logistics of that. This was also a number of years ago and something like SLAM wasn't, wasn't really in the works. I mean... It's funny, I think it's easier for me to think of things in, say, a heritage museum context, you know, the virtual guide at Fort Edmonton or something, than maybe the library. But I think you mentioned the scavenger hunt stuff. And in general, I guess this is broader, it's not really answering the question, but I think the way in which augmented reality, especially with the geolocation sometimes, can help build attachment to a place through experiencing things in this augmented reality. But the key thing with AR is that word reality that it's not nearly as far away from the actual physical space that something like VR is you're still there and I think we know enough now from cognitive science and neuroscience that place is really key in memory and part of what makes people care about their places and want to take care of their places and communities is attachment to them so giving them more memorable experiences in their branch library is probably not a bad way to have them care about what this place is in their life and memory and community.
1: Beautifully put. And of course, both interior and exterior space, right? People have very strong feelings about their community branch, renovating, building new library places, new locations. Um, There's, there's a lot you can do with, yeah, that, that building, that space as, as a structure and as a, Mental sort of marker in your mind, right? That you, all your memories and experiences in in that library. Um, I think I, I think there's rich potential there. There's lots of um, beautiful integrations with with tech and you know that that community space. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. I think this has been both a very technological, mm-hmm. very acronym-rich conversation, but also, um, to me, certainly, some ideas to think about and some applications from a non-librarian but someone who's really interested in this combination of, of tech and information and people. Yeah,
0: well, and I guess what somehow hasn't come up, I mean, the intent of my library design project when I was doing it was, how can this institution facilitate a diversity of languages, cultures, and, in, and information and also media types, because we were in a very print language dominated mode. And now we're moving into one that uses a lot of audio like this podcast and video and video games and all the rest of it. And so it becomes really a question of frameworks and how can we develop a good enough framework that can support and let that diversity thrive. And we know how to do it in other areas. You think about gardening and all the different species and plants interacting, and we can still shape this beautiful garden from that while letting all the plants have their autonomy. We don't really know how to do that with buildings or with information structures yet, but that's, that was kind of the one of the core questions I was asking and I'm still asking and we'll see. Yeah see where it goes.
1: Very well put. Well, thank you for thinking those thoughts and for sharing them.